0: text which is from the book of numbers what's that you say yeah i said that uh you heard me right the book of numbers the ill-named book of numbers i know it can be off-putting it's uh it gets a bad rap because it's called numbers and really that's just its english bible title that's not sort of handed down from on high that it be titled that i'd like to go back in time and whoever really decided that in English we'd call this Numbers, I'd like to sort of ask him to rethink it. You know, in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew name of the book is, uh, is Bamidbar. Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And that is a way cooler name than Numbers. But don't sell Numbers short. So let's look at Numbers chapter 35, where it says in verse 9 and following, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer, may not die until he stands before the congregation of judgment or for judgment. Now let's jump down a little bit to verse 25 on the next slide, which tells you something else that's interesting. Verse 25, as I say, is on the next slide. (laughs) Why, there it is. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So this is the inspired word coming to us from the book called Numbers. So I want to talk a little bit about the need for a place of refuge and from what? Refuge from what? This is Communion Sunday. We're doing some hymns and communion, and on a Communion Sunday, you might wonder, "Huh, is he going to do some kind of a message like we sometimes do that sort of touches on the theology that somehow relates to communion?" And if so, why are we in numbers? Well, just hold on, all right. Just hang with me. Israel, you know, was of course was a people. A people. They, Israel was not just a religious organization. It wasn't just a synagogue of sorts, like like a church. Israel was an entire people. They were out in the world, out there, sort of on their own, as it were. They, you know, they were led by God. They got, they had no other structure. They, they needed, they wanted to establish themselves. In order to do that, they could not just organize themselves as a religious body. They had to be an entire civilization. They wanted to be a kingdom. So, in other words, Israel had to be a state. They needed the complete structures of a state. And this is sort of part of what happens with the law of Yahweh that is given to them. The law covers a lot of things that we would say, oh, those are religious things, worshiping God in the temple and the priesthoods and so on. And moral things, basic moral things. You should not steal. Thou shalt not murder. So on. But you know, the law included also a lot of other things that helped them understand the basics of their society. They were an entirety of a people And so Israel, being something like a theocracy, led by God, ruled by God, and operating sort of like a, what we could call a constitutional monarchy, constitutional monarchy, in other words, they asked for a king, they got a king, so they were a monarchy, but they were not an absolute monarchy like other nations were, an absolute monarchy in places like Egypt where, I mean, the king, the emperor, or the leader of the Pharaoh, is like God. I mean, he has absolute power. He can sort of dictate what is even true and what is even false. And they are like the inspired words. Not so in Israel. Israel had something like a constitution. That is, Israel had a body of law that governed what they did. It, It was the authority. That body of law was the authority, not whoever was the king for a brief period. The king was subject to that law. Even the greatest king, David, found that out, didn't he? When, in for a brief moment. He got drunk with his own power. And thought he could do as he pleased. Like the other kings of the world did. And he learned in short order that he could not. That he was subject to the law as well. And of course we would be more familiar with this concept ourselves. Living in the modern day. And particularly living in the USA. And we would, we, we hearken back to people who know that kind of thing. And think about the words of a. Uh, I think it was Thomas Paine trying, British. He was British, trying to explain to his fellow, his fellow British guys why we didn't have a king here and how that worked. And he said to them, you know, in America they have no king. In America the law is king. He told them, the law is king. They've got something written and it is, it's as it were in stone. They have a constitution and that's what they appeal to. That gets the final say. People come and go from leadership. But that is something rock solid. And there's a stability in that, of course. Israel had something even better because Israel had the law given directly. And it governed things. And one of the things that the law had to do is is dictate matters between people and matters of justice. Israel was like all other people in the world, just like you and me and all of us and everybody everywhere the world over. That is, they were a whole bunch of sinners. They're just human. They just did all the stuff people do, even though they had the law and they were, tr- you know, I think they, um, on average, you would have found in Israel, a, sli- a, a higher ebb and flow of of living on the moral scale, just because of the emphasis on the law being taught from the time they were young. But they're still human. You still could count on things in Israel, bad things in Israel. The Israel nightly news would still have some stories about so-and-so, a body found somewhere. Which is what local news in most cities has turned into. Which is why you shouldn't even watch it. Wherever you are, turn on the news in any local, if there's any kind of city of size. And what are you gonna get right from the top? A body found somewhere. That's like, <laughs> what's, you know, seen one newscast, you've seen them all. And in Israel, you would have had that sometimes because they're just people. And so they needed, they needed part of the law to cope with justice, matters of justice. And this, this includes what we call retributive justice. That is the kind of justice that enacts punishments. Justice is a popular concept among many people today, but not that kind so much more what they sometimes call restorative justice or distributive justice. That is, the kind that deals out goods to people. We're really, really into that notion. Who gets what and is it fair? But retributive justice is just as important, and a society will fracture, break down, and and collapse into itself if it does not have that. Take all the police off the street, and good luck to you, my friends. Good luck. Disband your military and you're on the clock. It's just a matter of time. Probably sooner rather than later, uh, you will be uh, you will be answering to the Chinese government or whoever whoever the bigger the biggest dog is to come on in and, and fill that vacuum. Distributive justice and retributive. So this idea then of laws that punish the wrongdoing of things, they had to have laws, and Israel's laws, like all laws, if they're worth anything, they had to have teeth. They had to have teeth. They could not just say, pretty, please don't do this. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, is that okay? Okay, please don't, all right? We'll, it's like, we'll all kind of feel bad if you do. That won't get it done. People will people will steal. Um, you can stand in front of uh, all the stores <laughs> that are looted in the cities and say, hey guys, I don't, I don't really care for this. I think this is kind of wrong. And the funny thing is people don't just turn around and go home and stop looting. No, it's going to take dudes with guns. That's all that will stop it. In Israel, they had to have laws, and the laws had to be real laws. They had to have teeth in order to maintain justice. And at the top of the pyramid, of all systems of this kind of justice, is the taking of human life. Right? What what is above that? Uh, It's always... It's always... um, Above all the other, the other things, you know, when you watch um, crime dramas and stuff, most of the episodes of crime dramas are not about petty theft, are they? Because that's not dramatic enough. That doesn't create a, a juicy enough story. That doesn't compel the emotions enough to make several episodes. You, can, you know what I mean? You can't have a show entitled, you know, like Petty Theft, you know, or, you know, dun dun dun, right? Where <laughs> hard hitting investigators hit the streets to find out. You know, which Klepto is made out with, you know, a couple of watches out of the jewelry store. No, it's it's always murder. That's that's what is always the the subject of storylines because it's at the top of crimes. It is the chief capital crime of all crimes, the taking of a human life. And but not every life taken by another person is of is equal in nature, is it? They're not always the same, are they? The circumstances matter. Um, the motives matter. All of this must be taken into account. Incidentally, even the great commandment, which of course you know would also be tops among commandments that govern how we treat each other. Thou shalt not kill, we usually say. King James put it that way, I believe. But honestly, in English, it ought not say that. I think that's bad rendering, really ought to say thou shalt not what? Murder. murder. What? What's the difference? We sort of know, but let's just state it here. It has to do with everything I just said, because killing can be n- a neutral act. It can be accidental. It can even be justified. But murder is, by definition, Wrong. The immorality of the act is built into the word itself, which is why you never hear people say, "Oh, it was a justified murder." That's contradiction in terms. That is, that's just an, a logical mistake to put that term. That's like saying, "A uh, you know, he's a single married person or something." It's it, it's it it's contradictory. We have justified homicide because homicide doesn't have built into it the moral. Quality of being wrong in and of itself. But murder does. Murder does. And so that is what was opposed. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not kill wrongfully. But the wrongfully makes all the difference. And so here we have this passage. And there's something else to consider here that may not be as readily obvious to us because of the times in which we live. And that is that the basic default... um, of people's existence. The, the default culture of people is tribal. It's tribal. If you go back far enough, all human beings descend from tribes somewhere on some occasion. You may have to go back further. Now we talked, we looking Wednesday night, about people in the world who still live. That's still their their mode of existence. They don't live in massive enormous cities. With uh, sort of multi layered civilizational constructs like we've taken for granted now. So, we were looking at missionaries in places like Papua New Guinea where life is still tribal. I've been to places in South America where that's still how they live. They live tribe to tribe to tribe. But that's how everyone once lived. If you trace, if we followed somehow each one of your genes back wherever they go, anywhere in Asia or Europe or any continent anywhere, you will go back to tribal people. It may have to go back a ways, but that's where you will go back to. Read the history of Europe. It's tribes. But you know, it but you know, the growth of the the development and growth of cities and civilization and so on moved us out of that so much, although we still often people still often say that we are tribal in many ways. We still are in many ways. But why am I talking about it? Because because within tribal type of life, justice is often done. In the ways that we read here, and it may sound a little barbaric to you at first. That is to say, it had to do with kinship, and often it had to do with a with aven, avenging. That is to say, what what it what it called in this passage the blood avenger. You ever see that in that passage, the blood avenger. And you know, you think, wow, blood avenger sounds. I mean, I don't know, like a horror movie title or a or a death metal band, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, Blood Avenger. You know, Blood Avenger. It's uh, in Hebrew. It's uh, Goel Hadam, the Blood Avenger. Goel Hadam, the Avenger of Blood, because the notion was, and this is somewhat universal among among all people, again, particularly in the tribal existence that is most basic, that if a if someone wrongfully has killed someone then it is incumbent upon the blood relative, someone, to take up the cause of justice for that one who was killed, because it's your blood, your relative. And you must go and enact justice for that act. That's a basic thing. And by the way, the missionaries in the places like we mentioned, they will tell you that that is exactly how life goes there. That is exactly the way it is still practiced and we might say well boy that's barbaric well we you know over time again the growth of cities the constructs of larger states took took that out of the hand the direct hands of blood relatives and the state becomes the blood avenger on behalf of those wronged you know but even to this day who is it even to this day where there is an execution in the modern world, you know, like lethal injection, who is it that is invited or allowed to come and be present right there? It is the kin. It is the blood. It is those most related. So there's still a sort of vestige of that idea, even in that. So in Israel, they said the law comes to them and says, among many other things, listen, There, there is... There is something, even though there is this, you know, there is something about the eye for an eye and exacting justice and blood gets blood, as they say, and capital crimes deserve capital punishments. All that was sort of taken for granted. But of course, as we well know, there are mistakes. That kind of justice can be fraught with injustices when the wrong person is, is uh, killed in retaliation and this also can lead to never ending grudges never ending grudges so Israel had these basic laws that required things like for example and we didn't read this but it's you read that whole passage on your own you'll see it's in there in, the, in, in that chapter eyewitness and not even just one more than one eyewitness because in Israel they said we want, we've got to be sure very basic stuff. More than one eyewitness required to establish guilt. And a sort of jury of sorts, it called it the congregation, right? In that passage, the congregation will hear this case. That we need other people like a jury. We need some impartial people to the degree that we can get them to listen in and say, hey, is this person guilty? What was their motive? What was the circumstance? is is this is this manslaughter the the noun manslayer sounds funny to us but it shouldn't we have on our law books something called manslaughter to this day and so they had these things sort of built in and meanwhile if somebody guilty of a homicide but not guilty of it being murderous that is it's accidental um it is some kind of manslaughter. And now that person is under the threat of the wrath of the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. There is a way for that person to avoid being wrongfully put to death when it was merely accidental. And that is to go to this place, a refuge, a refuge built. Cities of refuge. Here is a place where you can go. And this is a cooling off period. And they stay in safe custody until a better hearing can determine the true guilt or innocence of that person. That is basically the summary I'm giving of of what we just read there, as best we understand it. Now, this by itself reiterates something that I think for us is intuitive, really, but that we can still forget. We can still forget it. Especially today. And that thing is that that sin is serious enough to require payment that sin is a serious enough business that it needs justice and that justice is still the most important consideration in these matters and and guilt is real it's not that it's not that no one is ever guilty some are some aren't but some are and if we're not careful see today i think we It's uncomfortable to to consider the guilt of people. And it's uncomfortable to consider the justice system as carrying out this kind of justice. And therefore, we often will think about punishments only in therapeutic terms. That is to say, the justice system takes those guilty of crimes, even terrible crimes, and really our consideration is pragmatic. We consider the cost. What does it cost to house? What would it cost to execute? We consider things like um, does, it, does it rehabilitate? Um, is it a deterrent? Practical matters, not matters that have some importance, but notice what's being left out in all of those. We can talk about the therapeutic element of does it help someone? Does it put them back? can it reincorporate them in society later? We can talk about all of that. But missing from all of that is the most basic notion of all, which is justice. Is that person truly guilty of something that demands a punishment? And if we are not careful, we can take that error and translate it into a theological mistake that mirrors that error. Where when we think about punishment, when we think about God in our place and the wrath of God, we also will want to not consider the justice of the matter. So then we think about the gospel only in therapeutic terms. And we think, about, we think about God and man and Jesus and our relationship to God only in terms of, does it help me? Is it good for me? Does it rehabilitate me? Is it practically useful in many ways? And that is what we think of as being a Christian just deciding that we will let Jesus sort of be our counselor and life coach and not considering the sort of grim aspect of where we stood versus where you stand if you're redeemed and the notion of a refuge. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, What was it about anyway? Year after year, this temple that they constructed according to these instructions, this high priest standing, doing duty, the people bringing these lambs. that They're supposed to be as much as possible without any blemish to give them up, to make sacrifice, blood sacrifice. Why? Why? What is this about? The seriousness of sin. The idea of punishment. And even for Israel, the grace of Yahweh, the grace of God. Because when they saw this happen, they all knew that should be me. I owe my blood. The wrath of God could fall on this head and body right here. Instead, he allows, he allows me to offer that substitute and the blood that bloodshed as opposed to my bloodshed. And I walk out forgiven, at least for another year, another atoning day, and my sins are taken away, and I get to walk away a free man because of that system. So that's what Hebrews was looking back to. Of course, it says in Numbers that if the person was in fact guilty, it says later, if the person was in fact guilty, if it should turn out, they flee to the city. There is the hearing from the congregation, and they determine that yes, this was premeditated, it describes this stuff like lying in wait, planning it out, you know, doing it on purpose. Then that person did have to pay the capital price. And in that case, the blood relative could be the one to. Have the hand in doing it. They could cast the first stone. But if not guilty of that, if it was accidental, you know, if it wasn't meant to be, or if somehow it was justified, if that person had been attacked and was defending themselves, you know, something like that, then that person could remain in the city of refuge without suffering the wrath of that Redeemer. Why did you say Redeemer? I thought it was Avenger. Because, friends, the word for that word Goel, Hadam, is actually in Hebrew the same word that is used for Redeemer. And they could escape that wrath in that city of refuge until it said what? Until the death of the high priest. The death of the high priest would act as a kind of symbolic atonement for that accidental or justified killing. Because, it's, because there still may be some level of guilt, right? Maybe you were a little careless. Maybe you should have paid more attention, you know, or something. There still could be some element of negligence, though it wasn't, wasn't murder. And in that sense, that. Priest's death in, a, in, a, in an odd symbolic way. I say odd because you know this sort of sneaks into the text. We don't often hear this. You know, acts as a kind of atoning, putting to rest all of it. In fact, in a way, the death of that present high priest buries the entire matter and ends the grudge. That 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 way, you don't have the never-ending retaliatory grudge that can span hundreds of years and generations, like you do see in in most tribal settings, and like you could see in our time, even still, people still hold grudges. Everyone holds grudges. And this is, but the the law said, look, once that high priest dies, that person who was living living in the protective custody of the refuge can walk outside that city. And you're not to take that revenge Or if you still do, now you're guilty. Now you stand for murder, trial, you know? Hmm, fascinating. So let's make some application now and tie this to what is represented at the communion table as part of our worship. Question Do you need a refuge? Do we stand in the need of a refuge? Well, I don't know. Am I guilty? Well, are you? Are you guilty? The wrath of, the, of that Goel Hadam, of that Avenger slash Redeemer, out to, out to balance the scales, out to put it right, that was a kind of justified wrath. That is to say, there was a righteous indignation. Presumably, that blood relative that was out to exact justice had nothing against that person otherwise, you know? What did they're not out to get them because they looked at them the wrong way, insulted them in public, you know, just just don't like the look of them, stole my girlfriend long time ago, whatever. <laughs> no, that would be an unjustified basis for trying to go after them in that way. But there is such a thing as a wrath that is Righteous, Amen. There is a justified kind of wrath. The wrath of God, of course, is a perfectly holy wrath. God is never in the wrong with his wrath. Well, I don't even like talking about the wrath of God. Then you probably ought not read your Bible. You're, you're, you're at risk of running into it in lots of places. It is real. So the wrath of God is a justified wrath. The guilt of man is a genuine guilt. All of us, all human beings, stand guilty as charged. So we do need a refuge from the Goel Hadam. We, We need a refuge from the redemption that would come to us outside of any substitute. We would have to make it right on our own. And that is a wrath. That is a righteous judgment that you are justified in fearing. And you are justified to want to flee from it and find a haven. You'd be insane not to. It's just natural that you would want to find a refuge from that wrath. Oh, if only there were one. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 6, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge from the perfect God, who cannot lie, whose wrath is, is perfectly good. It's appropriate, I've quoted from Hebrews twice already, because it is the one uh, book, that letter, best puts this all together for us. Do we, have a high priest? Yes. We have a high priest. That high priest, we seek refuge. Well, what about it? Does he die so that we and bury that grudge and we can walk free? He has died. He has died. And yet he lives. Will he die, Will he die again? Never again. We have a high priest, faithful, tempted in every way, and he never sits down until his work was done, like the old priests never sat down. But their work was never done, and therefore they never could sit down. They got old and died and were replaced. This high priest does not age does not die a second time. And guess what? He sat down. His work complete. And at the finishing of that work, in the temple not built by hands, at the completion of that work, that perfect sacrifice by that perfect lamb, this high priest sat down, finished with all the work forevermore. And in so doing, he buried all the the grudge. He buried the leftover, whatever the wrath that might have still come to you, you walk out. You have permanent refuge. You walk out free. If you are in Christ, the wrath of God is turned away. It's sent away. It's done for. In Christ, you are under a haven or a refuge. And the wrath of God is no more against you and you walk free though you yourself are guilty and by the way in this sense it's not because the difference here is you know according to numbers 35 if you truly were guilty of the real murder of actual murder you don't get that but in Christ even your guilt of not just well it was just it's just you know it's murder one it's mass slaughter. No, even the worst even the most heinous crimes of which you are guilty you are declared innocent that is why they call it good news